2: You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show.
3: I'm Eamon Javers back up with you at CNBC headquarters filling in for Kelly Evans today. And here's what's ahead on The Exchange. A big show for you. Another trillion dollars being pumped into the economy this time in that bipartisan infrastructure bill. But what's all this spending doing to the national debt? Well, we're going to ask the head of the National Economic Council, Brian Deese. He's going to join us live from the White House North Lawn in just a couple of minutes, so stay tuned for that. And China-backed hackers reportedly compromised five major telecom companies, taking control of their networks and stealing tons of data. We're going to talk to a cybersecurity CEO who calls this the holy grail of espionage. Plus, mask mandates are back. Many employers requiring vaccines or negative tests will be joined by the head of a company trying to make this new normal a little easier for all of us. But we begin right now with these markets. Dom Chu has the numbers. And Dom, tell me right now, how close are we to record territory? Are we going to break some records later on this afternoon?
4: We we could, but it's going to take a big feat here. So what we have right now are markets currently at the highs of the session this 23-point gain is the high of the session right now. Now, in context, the lows of the session were down 14 points or handles for the S&P, just to give you an idea of kind of the trading range so far today. But to your point, Eamon, the Dow Industrials and the S&P, both just about a half of 1% away from record highs and about a percent away from record highs for the Nasdaq composite, each up about one-third or one-half of 1% in trading today. Again, highs of the session right now. Now take a look at other parts of the market, specifically in cryptocurrency, where we are seeing a little bit of weakness in Bitcoin prices, specifically 38,490, the last trade there, just about two and a quarter percent of the downside. A lot of traders looking towards this 37,500 area that represents the 200-day average price for Bitcoin. So watch that, and of course, $30,000 below that seems to be where we found a little bit of consolidation and some support in that near-term trade. So Bitcoin certainly a focus here, and then the stock of the day, Robinhood. It's just recently IPO. We know how lackluster of a debut it had. 38 bucks a share, remember, was the IPO price. I'll put it up there right now. It opened up there, went sharply lower. And then, of course, today you can see here up 18% near the highs of the session right now, well above the $38 IPO price. So, again, an interesting sentiment reversal. We'll see how long it lasts. But Robinhood, it didn't start off with a bang, but certainly going big in gangbusters today in that trade. We'll see if it sticks. Back over to you,
3: Eamon. Dom, thanks so much. Stocks near record levels now, despite ongoing concerns about the surge in inflation and all of those new COVID cases we've been seeing out there. So is the market basically unstoppable until the Fed steps in and starts to taper? Well, my next guest says this is just the beginning of earnings growth with plenty of more room to move higher. Joining me now is Neil Hennessy, chief market strategist and portfolio manager at Hennessy Funds. Neil, thank you so much. How high can we go based on what you just heard there from Dom Chu?
5: Well, uh, Dom's never wrong in my opinion, but (laughs) at the same time, I think we're looking at 40,000 on on the Dow next 18 to 24 months. And that's really not stretching it, Amen, because if you really look at the way earnings are coming in and how strong the earnings are and where we are in the economy, which is at the beginning of this recovery, uh, it's different parts of the sections of the United States, including Marine County where we are. They're instituting, reinstituting masks again. But that's not going to slow the economy down and the earnings are coming in. And so when I look at 40,000 in the next 18 to 24 months, it's really looking at forward earnings and that at 40,000 would put us
3: on a PE basis of where we are here today. Neil, I don't know about you, but I'm old enough to remember when a guy wrote a book with the title Dow 36,000, and and that was viewed as pie in the sky, insane optimism. But you're saying 40,000 in the next, what, two years, right? So how do we get there?
5: Well, essentially what's happening is if you look at the consolidation in the market, the market's having a hard time moving higher just because you're taking the tech is taking a huge weight on it with Facebook and Microsoft and Google and Apple. But what's the shift that's happening here, Aaron, is they're moving to value, and the value's holding everything up. And there's plenty of value in the market without having to look at hi- hyper growth in that market. But those tech funds or companies will weigh on it and make it difficult. That's not to say that it's not going to be volatile. We've seen the volatility in the past. has been fine a uh, little meek lately. But at the same time, we'll probably get ahead here short term. But in, in all the years that I've been in the business, the last 42 years, people have to put in perspective of those 42-year, 41, 42 years, 37 of those were up markets. Seven were down. So essentially, we, we have a long way to go, a strong economy and strong uh, Uh, companies at this particular junction.
3: But two big things to worry about that uh, out there right now. One is inflation. Uh, The other one is COVID and this Delta variant. Why is the market seemingly willing to shrug off these things, which are huge worries, you know, generational or never seen before worries uh, in the market? Talk about the Delta variant. And and we see some of these companies now saying, look, uh, you're going to have to get vaccinated. We're going to have to have some rules around that. Uh, There's a lot of concern about the spread there, the increase potentially in Cases potentially in hospitalizations and deaths among the unvaccinated population. How's the market willing to just shrug that off right now?
5: Well, I think that people more and more people are getting vaccinated. We know that for a fact. There's uh, still a lot of people out there for one reason or another, but mainly scared of the vaccination. But in order to be employed going forward, I think it's gonna be essential that people end up being vaccinated. So at some point in time, we'll get beyond this. Aaron, uh, I mean, Eamon, we've seen a lot of different things for the first time in the 40 years that we've been in the business. So this is nothing new. When you look at what's weighing on people's minds behind that, is is inflation and in my opinion inflation is temporary but interesting enough if you just take common sense and logic and you look at it if uh the supply chain problem will get cured the reason we have it is because there was nobody working everybody was working off inventories but now you got a real problem uh in the semiconductor industry in the chip industry of trying to get these out that are seen to be in every product we use today but the real problem that we're looking at, and it's not that much of a problem, is Social Security. So if you look at Social Security, you're talking about this year we'll pay out about $1.2 trillion in Social Security. But that is marked to inflation. So if we take these short-term stats that we have now, you can see the budget increase in Social Security next year by $60 to $70 trillion. And that would be on, on forever, Going forward, because it's marked to inflation. But the biggest problem that I think inflation has is, if you go back to the late 70s and early 80s, was in wage contracts, and they're not happening today. But in wage contracts, uh, contracts they were um, every year uh, put to the inflation uh, test, and so essentially it was a cost of living increase. So if you were making fifty thousand dollars, inflation was running at 20. Next year you made 60, a year after 72, 83, and that, that couldn't go on. But we're not seeing that in today's marketplace.
3: Neil, thanks so much for being here. Fascinating conversation. You are not in the camp that's afraid of inflation. We're going to hear directly from Brian Deese at the White House. He's the National Economic Council director. He's going to be joining us from the White House North Lawn in just a couple of minutes. So thank you to Neil Hennessy with Hennessy Funds. We'll see if the White House agrees with you. Uh, But meanwhile, New York Governor Cuomo is responding to the state attorney general's report that came out earlier today. Contessa Brewer has all the details on what's going on over there. Contessa, tell us what's happening.
0: Well, the New York Attorney General, Letitia James, says Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York broke the law, broke federal laws, broke state laws. Right now you have Andrew Cuomo saying in a statement, I have never touched anyone inappropriately. He says he has never had inappropriate sexual advances. He says that is not who I am or, or who I ever was. In fact, he's downplaying the pictures that we have of him reaching out to kiss women on the mouth. He says that's the way he grew up with both his father and his mother kissing on the lips, that it was never intended to be anything but uh. Uh, a gesture of affection and of love. However, when you heard what Letitia James said during her news conference today, and remember, it was Governor Andrew Cuomo who tasked the attorney general's office into setting up an independent investigation, looking into the allegations against him. Her conclusion was, and the report flat out states, that there was sexual harassment of people, including Um, unwanted kissing, unwanted groping, uh, that there was unlawful retaliation when women came forward with their complaints, and that in general, the governor had a culture that was toxic and that was poisonous to those who worked for for him, including bullying and um, uh, victim um, vindictiveness, and that he actually would set up this environment where people were not able to say no to him. This is a story we've heard before. Harvey Weinstein, Steve Wynn, other leaders who were in some ways the emperor of their environment accused of setting up an environment where no one could say no. They did not feel like they had the right to say no. And Governor Cuomo right now strongly denying this. What we have to see happen is whether the lawmakers in New York take action on this, There has been some talk about impeachment, and it will be interesting to see whether this report lays the groundwork for impeachment. Additionally, although the attorney general has declined to uh, press criminal charges against the governor, she says the uh, work of her office is done. It apparently has been reported in several local municipalities and districts. So whether prosecutors at the county level decide to um, pick this up and use the report in their own investigations to press their own cases remains to be seen. But again, you have the New York uh, governor right now, Andrew Cuomo, denying that there was any serious sexual advances or any unwanted kissing or groping. He says he never touched anyone inappropriately. Guys, uh, we continue to monitor this. I'll bring you the fallout as it happens.
3: Yeah, Contessa, and you talk about these other leaders who've been de- dealing with allegations like this in the past years. The one who comes to mind for me is Donald Trump, who sort of ran the political playbook of deny the allegations, call it a witch hunt, say this never happened, this is total fantasy land, and just ride out the damage. And Trump was able to do that largely because he had the rock-solid backing of the Republican Party and the Republican political base around the country. The question then becomes, for Andrew Cuomo in a different party, do you think that he has the political backing of the Democrats in New York State uh, to ride this thing out, or is this a story that we're going to see unfolding over hours and days about whether or not Cuomo is going to resign from office here?
0: You know, it's interesting because there are Democratic lawmakers in this state who have already demanded that the governor of their own party resign from this executive position. I have spoken with at least three county executives who, though they declined to be named, have told me this toxic environment, this culture of bullying was something that they dealt with on a regular basis, including in trying to deal with the governor's office on setting up uh, vaccination and testing sites for coronavirus, that uh, it was... A my way or the highway approach. And so it's not surprising to a lot of these people who've been interacting with the governor's mansion, the governor's office for years to have Letitia James come out and say there was this bullying culture. One more point I want to make to that, Eamon, is that Today, Letitia James said, and and the lead investigators say, in an 11-hour deposition with New York's governor, he did admit that some of the things that he was accused of doing did happening. Uh, For instance, he says that uh, someone who was asked to sit on his lap at an event um, and that the kissing on the lips that may have happened. Um, He says that he admitted asking Miss Bennett um, to, to do those things and that he might have kissed a state trooper at an event, but his interpretation of those events was totally different than that of the women who have come forward and said they felt scared, they felt frozen, they felt unable to say no.
3: Contessa, this report, much tougher than a lot of the Democrats and a lot of the political observers around the country thought it was going to be in a very tough set of facts now for New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. Contessa Brewer, thanks so much for bringing sure. us the latest there. Meanwhile, coming up, we're going to speak with the National Economic Council director, Brian Deese, about infrastructure spending, inflation and the Delta variance risk to the economy. The exchange is going to come back right after this. You don't want to miss it.
0: What's on the horizon for financial markets?
3: The 2,700-page $1.1 trillion infrastructure bill is currently working its way through the Senate debate and amendment process. The text of the the bill revealed on Sunday night, just one day after Congress failed to act on the debt ceiling, forcing the Treasury to take, quote-unquote, extraordinary measures to prevent the U.S. from defaulting on its obligations. For more on how the Biden White House is handling the economy these days is Brian Deese. He's the director of the National Economic Council. He joins us from the White House. Brian, thank you so much for being here I first met you when you were a junior aide uh, back in the uh, Obama administration, and you had the desk, I believe, right outside the National Economic Council director's office. Now you've moved to the big office in all of its wood-paneled glory. Tell me what you think about this infrastructure proposal that you've got moving up on Capitol Hill right now. Amendments are happening. Do you like any of the amendments? Do you think there need to be any changes before this bill gets to the president's desk for signature?
7: Well, it's good to see you, Amen. Uh, This is a generational opportunity. This is certainly the most significant effort in my lifetime to invest in America's infrastructure. And it would really change the game, whether we're talking about roads and bridges, traditional infrastructure, our ports, our airports, getting goods to market uh, more quickly, but also the 21st century infrastructure, getting high-speed internet to all Americans, replacing all lead water pipes. This is a big deal and a big opportunity. Uh, we are really grateful to see the process moving forward as you say the bill is on the senate floor now they're considering amendments Uh, but the thing that i would emphasize is this is an issue that's been debated for decades Uh, the specific issues here have been worked on for weeks and so we're really optimistic and hopeful that this process will move forward and resolve, and we'll see a
3: final vote in the Senate here shortly. Do you like any of these amendments? Do you think there need to be any changes? Or are you happy just the way it is with the printed text, all 2,700 pages or whatever it ended up being? Uh, do you think there need to be any changes here?
7: Well, this is the legislative process. Uh, the 2,700 pages, that reflects the compromise and the really diligent work of a group of senators, but also committee chairs and ranking members over the course of the last several weeks. And like any piece of legislation, it goes through the process and where there is bipartisan support to make modifications, that will happen. We're engaging on those issues uh, in real time. This is how the process works. And uh, Washington hasn't put something big like this together in a while. So we haven't seen this in a while, but uh, we anticipate there'll be some uh, modifications along the way. But the core package reflects the president's plan, which is a multi-year investment, a capital investment in our country to upgrade our nation's physical infrastructure, not just our existing physical infrastructure, but the infrastructure we're going to need for the next generation, whether that be high-speed internet or electric vehicle charging for what we know to be the revolution in terms of electric vehicles that is coming. You
3: know, the conventional wisdom in Washington used to be that the easiest bill to pass was a giant spending bill, which had roads and bridges and stuff in every state and in every congressional district. This bill certainly fits that label. And yet it's been hard to get even this done in a Washington that's much more polarized than it's ever been before. So even though the conventional wisdom used to be uh, that this is easy to do, uh, do you think you're going to have the votes here at the end of the day to get this done?
7: We're confident we can get this done. You're right that this used to be an issue that didn't uh, raise as much uh, partisan concern. But what part of what President Biden has done from the get go is say wherever we can find compromise and common ground, he's going to work to try to do that in a bipartisan way. This is a big effort to do that. And one of the things that we have been heartened by is we've seen the unlikely coalitions come together around this bill the major business organizations in the country the chamber of commerce the business roundtable major labor organizations from the AFL-CIO and others as well as mayors and governors all around the country almost 400 mayors standing up and saying this is precisely what we need if we think about growing our economy at the local level we need to replace lead pipes we need to get high speed internet in the hands of our residents so we're seeing unlikely coalitions come together we're confident we can get this done obviously Uh, This process, we're taking nothing for granted. We're working hard and staying closely connected with our uh, Senate counterparts, but We're hopeful and confident we can get this through the Senate, then work through the House and and get this to President Biden's
3: desk. Now, coming right after this, you guys have another proposal for even more spending, a three plus trillion dollar spending. They're calling it sort of the soft infrastructure spending proposal that you guys have been working on all year long as well. Do you have the votes for that one as big as it is at three plus trillion? And then I think the question for you going back to the Obama years is, uh, was your lesson from Obama and the Obama stimulus just go big or go home? Do you think you went like a little too small with Obama and you're trying to course correct now that you're uh, with the Biden administration?
7: Well, this president came in focused on making sure that we were going to tackle both our health and economic crises simultaneously. Our actions to date have been focused very much like a laser beam on that, and we have seen the results. Obviously, we're working through challenges with the Delta variant now. but we are experiencing a historic recovery, historic economic growth, historic job growth. The proposals here are really about something different. This is not about short-term stimulus. It's about long-term investments in our country's productive capacity. And a big piece of that is what you refer to as human infrastructure, investing in early education, in childcare, so that more people and more parents can get into the workforce and doing so in a way that is fully offset across time. It's also been a while in Washington that we've actually tried to responsibly pay for what we're doing. That's a core uh, of the proposals we put forward. So we're also confident that we can move that process forward in the Senate. Those are issues that have traditionally had some bipartisan support, but we're not anticipating that that will be a bipartisan vote. Uh, But we think that we can get that process going in the Senate and the House to write what's known as a reconciliation bill and get that done as well.
3: Let's talk a little bit about inflation. Your critics are saying that inflation is real in this country, it is back and it's Joe Biden's fault. Uh you have said that you think that this infrastructure bill, you said as recently as this weekend, this infrastructure bill will go a long way to relieving some of the bottlenecks that are out there in terms of the supply chain which are causing prices to go up and inflation, perhaps, to spread throughout the economy. But that infrastructure bill is, you know, years down the pike. I mean, the one thing we also learned in the Obama years is that nothing is quite as shovel-ready as you think when it comes to infrastructure. So can you do anything about supply chain and the bottleneck in the short term beyond what's coming, you know, years from now in this infrastructure package?
7: Absolutely. One of the first things that this president did was uh, issue an executive order to have an all out focus on making our supply chains more resilient. And one of the things that we've seen as demand has come back and as the American economy has come back uniquely in the global context is some of these bottlenecks occurring, whether it's in computer chips or uh, inputs for construction goods for uh, for homes and buildings. So we're really focused on working with industry, bringing industry and labor around the table, both in the U.S. and globally, and trying to say, what can we practically do to try to unstick some of these bottlenecks on computer chips, for example, we've had multiple convenings. Uh, myself and my counterparts uh, in the White House have engaged with foreign country governments and, uh, and uh, international companies to try to make sure that U.S. firms are getting their allocations of those chips. And the long-term answer to this is to invest in building our own domestic capability to have more resilience in our supply chain. And even as you say, that, that's not going to happen in a matter of weeks, but if we start to make those investments now, then six, 12, 18 months down the road, you'll start to see more domestic capability and put ourselves at less risk that we see something like what happened last year where we were completely exposed without access to basic materials in many supply chains.
3: So with all this spending, Brian, the, the basic question for you is when do you start worrying about debt and deficits. You know Your critics are saying you're in the red zone already in terms of spending. This is dangerous and perhaps irresponsible. You guys have said these investments are absolutely needed to improve the economy. But how much spending is too much in your view? Where, where's the level where you would be concerned? Well, I think the question
7: misses the central point. Before this president took office, in the, under the last president and the last Congress, they added more than $6 trillion to the debt in unpaid for spending and unpaid for tax cuts, including the 2017 tax cut that mostly went to the highest income Americans and corporations. The Biden plan is fully paid for. So we're not going to propose nor enact measures that we can't offset over time with credible responsible offsets. So in the case of the human infrastructure package we we're talking about, the president's laid out a very clear approach to reforming our corporate tax code and increasing taxes on high-income individuals without increasing taxes on anyone making less than $400,000 a year. If we do that, the package as a whole would actually reduce deficits over the long term. So that's a very different conversation than the one that we've been having over the last couple of years, but we think that's the right, uh, the, the right prescription. Make the kinds of investments we know we need in things like early childhood education and offset them over time with responsible changes to the tax code.
3: Brian, last question for you. You can't see the screen, but we just had you up, your picture alongside the Dow and all the markets that are out there right now. We've been watching this astonishing run in the markets, uh, potentially record highs. We've seen a number of records in recent days. The question is, how does the White House look at markets? I mean, I covered the Trump administration. The Trump economic team would tell you they saw markets as a mark-to-market measure of exactly how they were performing on a daily basis. And they looked at markets and said, yes, we get credit for that because we think uh, that what we're doing is building this economy. Does the Biden administration look at these markets that have been surging and say, we get credit for that because of all the steps that we've been taking?
7: Well, what I would say is this. President Biden's fundamental metric for economic success is whether working Americans, middle class families can actually achieve their economic goals. They've got job opportunities, wage increases, And as the president often says, that little space to breathe, to be able to operate with a sense of dignity and purpose and feel like they can give their kids better opportunities than uh, than they've had. And that's at core how we think about measuring our economic success, not looking at the markets. But I would note that to the degree that your metric is uh, the financial markets, uh, it's been a pretty, uh, uh, pretty strong uh, run here. So you want to take Uh, a little credit,
3: but but not all the credit. Well, it's not, it's not our
7: focus. It's not what we wake up focused on. But for a lot of people who do wake up focused on, I think that there were a lot of, uh, you know, there were a lot of prognostications that Joe Biden's election as president might uh, spell doom for financial markets. Uh, clearly, that hasn't been the case. And we've seen uh, quite significant growth during this period.
3: Brian, I got to leave it there. Thanks so much, White House National Economic Council Director Brian Deese, for joining us. Really appreciate your time from the White House. Turning to China now, where state media is comparing online gaming to, get this, opium and calling for government regulation to prevent addiction among children. The news dragging down both Hong Kong listed shares like Tencent and NetEase, as well as U.S. names, including Electronic Arts and Take Two Interactive. Josh Lipton is at the, uh, at the NASDAQ with
8: more on all of this. Josh, what's going on? So, Amin, opium of the mind, that is how Chinese state media is now referring to online gaming, comparing it to drugs. In the article, further restrictions were called for, saying online gaming addiction is widespread among the youth there and could impact their growth. No surprise, you mentioned, stocks getting whacked, including names like Tencent, one of the world's largest gaming companies, NetEase, and Billy Billy, too. But then, a surprising twist here the report was actually disappeared and then resurfaced with a much softer tone, with reference to opium removed, companies clawing back some of their losses. This criticism, of course, isn't entirely new. Remember back in 2018, just one example, Beijing freezing new game approvals. Still questions now remain for investors. Could there be more new regulations on the way? We simply don't know right now, but Tencent getting out in front of the problem and taking action, already announcing new restrictions, for instance, barring children under 12 from spending money in-game. Eamon, back to you.
3: Josh, thanks so much. And coming up, the hacks of Colonial Pipeline and Microsoft dominated the headlines, but a reportedly years-long cyber attack on behalf of the Chinese military has flown under the radar until today. Those details and the latest in the cyber Cold War still ahead.
6: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do.
2: Welcome back. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is our CNBC News update. The British Navy is warning of a potential hijack of a ship off the coast of the United Arab Emirates in the Gulf of Oman. Although it did not provide any further information, Iran, meantime, is denying that it has anything to do with the incident. Tyson Foods will require all of its 120,000 U.S. employees to get vaccinated against COVID-19, and the company plans to give frontline employees $200 as an incentive to do so. The meatpacking company says that fewer than half of its U.S. employees have been vaccinated. And COVID-19 hospitalizations in Florida hitting an all-time high again with more than 11,500 patients. But in a news conference earlier today, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis vowed that there will be no shutdowns in the state despite the increase. And tonight on the news, Shepard Smith will discuss the latest on COVID with an expert on infectious disease from Florida International University. You're now up to date. Eamon, I'll send it back to you.
3: Rahel, thanks so much. Tough news out of Florida there. Meanwhile, a new report from cybersecurity firm Cyber Reason reveals that China infiltrated Southeast Asian telecom companies years ago and has been stealing information ever since. Could your phone be the next big target? Former hacker and CEO of Cyber Reason, Lior Div, will join me next. The Exchange will be right back. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. A new report from cybersecurity company Cyber Reason highlights a major national security threat, cyber surveillance report finding that hackers infiltrated Southeast Asian telecom companies on behalf of China for years. They stole phone logs and location data to spy on the Chinese military's targets. And these attacks could be replicated in other regions of the world as well. So joining us now is the lead author of that report, Lior Div. He's the CEO and co-founder of Cyber Reason. Lior, tell us what you found here and tell us how you found it.
9: Very nice to, to be here today. Uh, so basically we did a full, um, uh, conducting the full report of investigating a new way of attack. Uh, we call it Operation Dead Ringer. In this case, basically what we managed to found that uh, the Chinese government uh, uh, direct three different attack group to go after the single target, a specific uh, telecommunication in Southeast Asia in order to be able to have a full control on the network and in order to be able to do a full espionage on every user of that
3: network. So this is an enormous amount of data. I mean, you're talking about gigabytes and gigabytes. Give me a sense of just how much, in in layman's terms, right, for people who are not familiar with all this technology, how much data are we talking about that the Chinese government allegedly got access to based on what you're finding?
9: Yeah, so basically we managed to date it back to all the way to 2017. So if you go all the way back to 2017 and think about every phone call, every SMS, every location that people have been, we're talking about endless amount of data that they managed to collect. It's not just an endless amount of data. It's actually the insight of every location of every person that uses a phone in that network. They could know exactly where this person is, what they are doing, where they're going, who they're interacting with, with, what SMS they send to other people and what type of phone calls they make. So basically, a full control and a full understanding of what's going on inside the network.
3: It's a stunning amount of data and a stunning ability to drill down to the individual targets of all this. So tell us how the Chinese government was actually using this. You talk about the Chinese military using this. Were these uh, military targets that they were trying to track? Are these U.S. persons that they're tracking in Asia? Or who are they actually going after with this?
9: Yeah, basically, it's important to understand that that's give them a kind of a superpower. They basically can really choose the target and change who they are tracking. Yep, on a daily basis. So, uh, and this is a, a wide range of, of capabilities. And this is the reason that we believe that they use three different attack groups in order to achieve this uh, type of, of control on the network.
3: Is this, act, uh, is this still active right now? I mean, are they still having this kind of visibility into these telecom networks?
9: Yeah, so we we basically managed to identify each and every one of the things that they were doing, how they're doing it, and we managed to push them out. But we decided to go out with this report because this is a group that we're tracking for the past three years. And what we see, we see that they're evolving their techniques and becoming better and better every day. So in this report, basically what we did that we did not did before, we detailed all the techniques and the technical details of how to identify them and how to found them in order to push them out from any cellular provider. So basically that's the
3: power. Leroy, all of this makes me super nervous. I've got my phone here, you know, I use it, goes with me everywhere, my location data, of everywhere I am. Uh, This makes me extremely paranoid about what my phone is telling somebody about where I am and what I'm doing. The question for you is, what about American telecom networks? Are they vulnerable in the same way that you saw with these overseas telecom networks? And do the Chinese have the ability to get into U.S. networks and track Americans here in the United States?
9: So in the past, we saw the same group doing it, uh, the same type of operation in the U.S. We did not manage to see an indication right now, but with the data (laughs) that we released in this report, it will enable every telecommunication to find them and push them out.
3: Amazing stuff, Lior. Thanks for the research. Thanks for the information. A little bit reassuring there about the U.S. side of all this, but scary nonetheless. Lior Div, thank you again. Really appreciate you coming in. Uh, Meanwhile, take a look at this mystery chart. It's flirting with its worst day since 2000 after reporting disappointing earnings. And jaw-dropping margin figures will reveal that name next. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Exchange. The Dow is bouncing back from yesterday's 100-point drop, getting a boost from the banks Caterpillar and 3M. It's about 150 points from a record high here, up about 205 and change right now. And here are some of the other movers at this hour. Clorox flirting with its worst day in more than 20 years after missing top and bottom line estimates for its latest quarter and forecasting a drop in annual sales. But it doesn't stop there. Clorox's gross margin dropped by nearly 10 percentage points to 37.1% falling short of estimates for the first time in nearly three years. And you see the chart there. It does look like the pandemic boom for Clorox might be over with. Meanwhile, Micron is instituting a quarterly dividend for the first time, paying shareholders 10 cents a share on October 18th. The chip company is also adjusting its buyback program, saying it'll be more opportunistic by holding back when shares are high so it can retire more shares for each dollar spent. Shares are on pace for their best day now since May. And up next, despite more than 70% of Americans having at least one dose of the COVID vaccine, the mandate debate rages on. But there are some places most Americans... Can agree jabs should be required. The latest CNBC All-America survey results, those are coming up next. You don't want to miss them with Steve Leisman. And with summer vacations in full swing, we'll talk to Dr. Patrice Harris, the CEO of EMED, a digital at-home COVID testing platform, about its partnerships with major airlines and why testing is still important for vaccinated folks. The exchange will be right back. Don't we? And welcome back. Here's one to watch. Microsoft and Tyson both announcing vaccination requirements for employees today. And despite the rise of the Delta variant, Americans are divided on those mandates, according to the results from the latest CNBC All-America survey. Steve Leisman joins me now with the numbers. Steve. Amen. thank you. Whether you agree or disagree
1: with vaccine mandates, You have plenty of company. The latest CNBC All-America economic survey finding 49 percent of the public agreeing with vaccine mandates overall and 46 percent disagree and 5 percent are unsure. So that's pretty much within the polls, three and a half percent margin of error. The controversial topic, among the most important political and economic debates going on right now as the nation figures out, how do you get back to normal amid a resurgent virus and many refusing to become vaccinated? Our poll, in fact, shows 68 percent are vaccinated and Republicans lead the group of the unvaccinated. Just 58 percent, they have any shot at all compared to 87 percent of Democrats who have gotten the jab. When it comes to vaccine mandates, 74% of Democrats approved, 43% of independents, and just 29% of Republicans. Beyond the overall idea of a mandate, CNBC asked about specific situations. We found Americans thinking pretty carefully and making some really clear distinctions. There's majority support, for example, for vaccine mandates for hospital employees, on cruise ships and airplanes, on college campuses, and even just barely for federal government employees. But turn the other way, that support drops off when we asked about concerts and the workplace, restaurants, hotels and malls. In fact, Eamon, I thought this was really curious. Just 54 percent of those who are vaccinated think there should be a vaccine mandate in their workplace. I thought that would have been a slam dunk much higher.
3: Yeah, Steve, how much has the resurgence of covid and inflation cut into people's views of the economy right now?
1: Yeah, for sure it's taking a toll. We saw some of the worst numbers we've seen in many years when it came to people's uh, assessment of the current state of the economy and the outlook. We also saw, Eamon, that those two issues, inflation and COVID especially, are weighing on the president. While his approval rating was about the same, his approval rating for
3: handling the economy and for handling the coronavirus both have come down. Steve, great stuff. Uh, Interesting to me to note that where people don't want to see the vaccine mandates, that seems to be a lot of the places where it'd be really tough to actually check. You know, malls and public places like that, very difficult to actually enforce all that in places like that. Meanwhile, today, uh, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio announcing New York will become the first city in the U.S. to require proof of vaccination for both workers and customers to access indoor dining, gyms and performances. This very issue we're just talking about, the move, is intended to spur people to get their shots. So joining me now to discuss Dr. Patrice Harris, co-founder and CEO of eMed and former president of the American Medical Association. Dr. Harris, talk to me about this issue we're just discussing with Steve Leisman, which is, People say, you know, we don't necessarily like these mandates everywhere, some places, hospitals, sure, but shopping malls, maybe not so much. How do we put those into place? Can we put those into place and can we enforce it?
2: Certainly these uh, surveys are very important. They give us data. They let us know where we have work to do. But at the end of the day, this is about public health and we have to follow data and we have to make sure that the science dictate our uh, recommendations. We know vaccines are the best uh, protection and uh, certainly based on local data, it is absolutely uh, critical and paramount and okay that some businesses and some governments decide Uh, to mandate vaccines.
3: I I know you're a medical professional. You look at the science. You look at the public health implications of all this. But to what extent do you have to take politics into consideration here? Just the idea that some people are going to refuse to participate in all of this. So as you model the public health response, how much do you have to sort of figure out what the public polling is and and where the resistance is and whether people are simply going to avoid following all these rules in the first place?
2: Absolutely critical. Polling data, critical politics, critical for the context. But at the end of the day, and this has been the unfortunate and candidly quite frustrating aspect of the pandemic is that it has been so politicized, mass wearing, whether or not we are testing, who should be testing vaccines. And I will tell you from my lens, As a physician, as a public health advocate, and even as a CEO and co founder of EMED, we have to make sure uh, that we are as relentless as this virus has been, right? This virus has been relentless in infecting us, in mutating, in replicating. We have to be just as relentless. So, yes, it's vaccines, yes, it's testing. Yes, it's mass wearing, yes. And we also have to make sure, though, that we make the right thing to do the easy thing to do. And of course, that's part of our work at eMed regarding testing. So we need that context, but we have to make sure that the science and what we know uh, is in the best interest of public health dictates uh, what we do.
3: So does this have to be a national response, or do you look at it region by region and say, these are the hot spots, this is where we need a mask mandate, this is where we need a vaccine mandate, or do you say, you know what, the whole country should just follow the same rules and that way it's clear for everyone?
2: I think absolutely there's no question that national leadership is critical, but we do need a local and regional approaches. We need to let the local public health officials make the recommendations uh, to our elected leaders, again, based on uh, the virus transmission, the the rate of hospitalization. Unfortunately, we are seeing hotspots here, but again, it's important uh, that as we return to work, school, even play, Uh, on travel, uh, that we do all that we can, looking at the local data and even our own risk um, when we decide uh, what mitigation strategies are needed in the local
9: jurisdictions.
3: Yeah, it is important. Thanks so much, Dr. Patrice Harris, for sharing your expertise and your insights with us today. Up next, with rising cases across the country, a new masking guidance, how are restaurants faring? We'll get the latest sales numbers. That's coming up next. Well, sadly, infections, hospitalizations and deaths are once again on the rise thanks to the highly contagious Delta variant. Despite that, though, restaurant sales remain strong. So let's get to Kate Rogers with the latest numbers there. Hey, Kate.
10: Hey, Eamon, well, even as COVID cases continue to rise around the country, restaurant sales and traffic still seeing gains, according to the latest data from Black Box Intelligence. Comp sales up 24.2% and traffic up 18.5% for the week ended July 25th. The same week last year for context, sales were down 13.5% and traffic down nearly 20%. Guests are also continuing to spend more with growth in average check up 4.4%. Some big news as you talked about earlier today for the restaurant world out of New York City with. Mayor Bill de Blasio saying he will mandate vaccinations for employees and customers for indoor dining and gyms. San Francisco is also considering the same and a coalition of bar owners out here already recommended it for indoor dining and drinking. The National Restaurant Association said it does support vaccinations, but that the mayor's move changes operations and they hope there's clear guidance for workers, adding that this is not like just checking an ID for a drink, saying, quote, now without training, our staff members are expected to check the vaccine status of every customer, wanting to eat inside the establishment last year when mask mandates across the country were put in place, restaurant workers suffered terrifying backlash when enforcing those rules. Now, restaurant stocks today all in the red, uh, with the exception of a handful of the pandemic winners we saw last year, Papa John's, Domino's, Chipotle and Wingstop, all seeing gains. They were the top performers in 2020 during the pandemic. Back over to you.
3: Kate, we don't, much, don't have much time left in the show, but I was walking around New York City last night and it looks like those restaurant sheds are absolutely booming. I mean, the New York restaurant industry, based on my you know, sample size of one, does seem like it's booming again. Do you think those restaurateurs are gonna fight to keep those restaurant sheds in place?
10: I think a lot of them really want to. It's been an extra revenue stream over the last year when so many things were closed down. And if we're potentially heading back in that direction or seeing restrictions or distancing, it's just a way to hang on to those customers and sales, particularly if people don't want to show proof of vaccination, they have the option to eat outside.
3: Kate, you're the expert. Thanks so much.
10: You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day,
2: same time, same place.